Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. joining us tonight. Uh, when Mark Dewidziak was a guest in February to review his new uh, Poe biography, we discussed some of his consultations with other Poe scholars and profilers. Our guest tonight is one of those guys. Uh, it's an honor to have Daniel Stashauer appear on Nightlight. He has won the prestigious Edgar and Agatha Awards. His uh, Beautiful Cigar Girl is an amazing biography of Mary Rogers, Poe, Poe's writing of the short story, The Mystery of Mary Roget, the evolution of New York City, uh, New York City's police department. Um, and, Dan's latest publication is American Demon, which is another true crime story set in Cleveland in the 1930s and continues the biography of Elliot Ness. Um, If you like these true crime shows, like the ones we've done with Mark Olshaker, I highly recommend American Demon. Uh, Dan was influenced by Mark and John Douglas's writings, you know, just like I have been, as well as Mark Dewidziak. So, um, all of his, all, all of Dan's titles are on Amazon. Uh, after you hear tonight's show, uh, go to Amazon. Uh, check out his amazing canon of literature. Um, let's see. So, I think I've rambled enough. Uh, hi, Dan. How are you? Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. It's great to speak with you, Mark. 
Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to tonight's show. It's, uh, and I, I think our listeners really enjoy these kind of shows too. So, um, let's see. You know, I was thinking about starting off with, um, yeah, let's have a quick review of Elliot Ness's, you know, rise to prominence in Chicago. Um, I'm sure most of the audience isn't familiar with Elliot's life after all the uh, Capone uh, then you know, breaking up the uh, you know, bootleg and all that stuff in Chicago. Yeah, I, I didn't until you know, I read American Demon, but you know, let's uh, give us a little bit of background on where Elliot uh, you know, becomes a household name in Chicago, and, and we'll take it from there. Oh, sure. Well, Elliot Ness uh, rose to fame during the Prohibition years as the man who got Al Capone. He's remembered today as the leader of the Untouchables. The Untouchables were this legendary team of tough guy Prohibition agents. Uh, Some people will remember the old black and white TV series, and others will have seen the more recent movie with Kevin Costner and Robert De Niro. But when people think of Elliot Ness, they usually think of those scenes of the big truck smashing through the doors of an illegal brewery. Yeah. But that chapter of, of Ness's career was, was brief, and it was pretty much all wrapped up by the time he turned 30. So he needs a second act. And what does he do? He moves to Cleveland. Okay, so what is... Uh going on in Cleveland? Is it just more of the same prohibition era uh, gangster kind of stuff going on? Well, it's the uh, prohibition had been repealed, but the problems that had that prohibition had opened the door, it had strengthened or, or organized crime. Uh, to an uncanny degree. And this was something that Ness was out in front on. He understood uh, that um, prohibition had put power in the hands of organized crime. And uh, at one stage, he was offered a job as the director of public safety in Cleveland, Ohio. And this was a position that put him in charge of the police department and the fire department and a whole lot more. And it was a big big promotion. In Chicago, he'd been in charge of a handful of guys. And now in Cleveland, he's in charge of more than 2,500 city employees in one of America's biggest cities. And what's more, he's the youngest person ever to hold the job. So a lot of people assumed that he wasn't up to it, that he would fall flat on his face. Ness had been told that the job was impossible, um, but he really, he put his back into it. And uh, the, the, the wonder of it all is the degree to which he succeeded. One of his friends, a journalist, said that apparently Ness will not rest until every enemy of the people has been brought to justice. He really, really put his shoulder to the wheel and did an incredible job. Okay. And uh, I forget what page it is, but uh, somewhere in uh, American Demon, you, you know, you mentioned you know, Lakeville, 
or the you know Lakeville Road, uh, you know that you know it was kind of like a, a bad uh, scene. You know that's also shows up in Godfather uh, Part Two. I was like, oh, okay, so you know that you know that's actually some uh, you know re- real history worked into you know, these movies. Oh yeah, I, um, I mean, uh, in those days, uh, um, Cleveland was uh, every bit, oh, near, very nearly as mobbed up as the, as Chicago was. So it's a big, it's a big, big job when Ness comes in, and also at the same time, uh, the uh, police department was as it had been in Chicago. Uh, the the police department is very corrupt. And Ness's marching orders are to clean up the police department that was basically rotting from within because of corruption and also to try to break the stranglehold that the mob had over the city. So, you know, this is huge. Clean up the police force, take down the mob. And uh, somehow he he made some real headway. Uh, And as, uh, as a friend of his said, his timing was terrific. Um, because the city had seldom needed a hero so badly. And on the heels of his work in Chicago, Ness became the public face of this effort to take down uh, organized crime, get the city back on its feet, and lift it out of the the, uh, slumps that it had fallen into during the worst of the Great Depression. Okay, so... so, um... Just another, you know, brief segue. Uh, you know, speaking of movies, um, you know, I'm sure everyone's familiar uh, with the Untouchables, and you know, you do discuss uh, a, a few few scenes from the movie that okay, want the rooftop scene yeah okay that was hollywood but the um uh courtroom scene at, at the end of the movie uh, uh, there was uh, that's partially based on uh, what really happened so yeah, <clears throat> you know before we start moving too far away from uh the you know, the uh little bit of the chicago background that we want to introduce can, can you tell us a little bit more about um you know those couple scenes from uh the untouch the kevin costner uh, untouchable movie uh that uh you, you wrote about i thought that was kind of in- interesting oh it's it's a, a fabulously interesting uh interesting story and look i i think uh the the untouchables movie um is terrific compressing and uh, 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 with with the facts and um, there were there were some uh, some things that I think Ness himself would have uh, <laughs> would probably have raised an eyebrow um, about. Uh, it, it's important to understand that Ness's Ness uh, was uh, was very busy um, gathering evidence uh, against uh, Capone on prohibition charges. Uh, and also by attacking uh, the the um, illicit the uh, breweries, uh, punching a hole in Capone's uh, revenue stream. Um, 
there was a, a, a quote at the time uh, that, that said that uh, Capone had risen to power uh, on a tidal wave of beer, ministering to a $20 million a year thirst. And Capone played this part to the hilt. He had a, a, a $50,000 pinky ring, and he rode around town in an armor-plated Cadillac. And he passed out diamond-studded belt buckles to his friends. Uh, supposedly, he once said, you can get a lot farther with a smile and a gun than you can with just a smile. And, and it seemed as if nothing could be done about it. By some estimates, the Chicago bootlegging machine had set aside uh, $1 million each month. This is each month to grease the palms of crooked officials. So the point of Elliot Ness's raids on Capone's breweries was to dry up Capone's revenue, and it would disrupt this web of bribes and payouts and give the taxmen a chance to move in and do their work. And this is a part that is sometimes overlooked in the story was that uh, Ness took a great deal of pride in the dangerous work that was done by the untouchables, but he also understood his role as a supporting player in a large multi-pronged effort to bring down Capone. And he once said to a reporter that although he'd done his part in the effort to bring down Capone, the real work of sending Capone to prison was done by the tax investigators. He added, our job was more spectacular. That was all. But look, if you're covering this trial and the, the trial is about is Capone going to be put away on tax evasion charges? And in the middle of it, there's this handsome young uh, prohibition agent driving a truck through the doors of breweries. You're, you're definitely going to focus on on that aspect of the story. I mean, which which movie would you rather see? Uh, but but the but the trial, um, Capone was sent to prison on uh, on the work that was done by the tax investigators, and and Elliot Ness understood that as well as anyone. Okay, so and uh, the changing of the juries uh, actually that actually happened. Yeah, it actually did. Uh, um, in the movie, there's a terrific scene it's very very well played uh that um they swap out the jury that uh that that capone's men had reached with bribes and brought in a fresh jury uh that that uh, that that they hadn't gotten to um and in the movie it's it, you know it's it's done uh, uh and for, forgive me if i've if i've got it wrong because I, I haven't seen the movie in a while but it's done on uh on Pretty much off the off of Capone's bat, uh, which makes for a good a good story and a very dramatic scene in the movie. But uh, the, the judge who presided over uh, over the case um, uh, was the one who uh, who orchestrated that maneuver, and a great deal of the credit uh, for the successful prosecution of that case uh, goes not only to him, but of course to the to the prosecutors who were who. Uh, worked valiantly uh, and uh, heroically uh, and very bravely uh, to to gather the evidence and uh, bring it out in court. 
Okay, cool. So, okay, so while Elliot is getting his feet wet in Cleveland and you know, cleaning up the uh, police department, um, we start getting a few bodies are being discovered along uh, you know, Lake Lake Erie. Um, so then, then there's uh, two bodies found close together on uh, you know, the Jackass Hill uh, part of Cleveland. So uh, the story, you know, the serial killer story, is starting to emerge. So it you was. Know, <laughs> You know, now's the time for all the uh, listeners to start, uh, you know, putting uh, to use all, all the profiling information you've gotten from Mark Olshaker. And you know, what are we starting to uh, learn from the coroner after his examinations of the bodies? Well, you know, I, it's it's just important to understand the the, the you know the, the scale of things. This is the mid 1930s. Uh, we're still feeling the effects of the of the depression, and there's this uh, string of absolutely brutal killings, horrible and seemingly without precedent. Each of the victims appeared to have been beheaded. Some, it seemed while still alive. And the remains, in most cases, were painstakingly dismembered and scattered across the city. You mentioned Jackass Hill, where a pair of schoolboys stumbled over um, a a pair of headless torsos, or a severed limb might be found floating down the Cuyahoga River, or a skull would be found rattling around in a tin can at a city dump and each atrocity touched off a cycle of fear and outrage and calls for action in the newspaper with headlines like the mad butcher strikes again. And who is this mad torso killer? And from the beginning, uh, the, uh, the coroner, the first of the two coroners who worked on the case, Uh, came to the conclusion that the killer must have some kind of medical knowledge because of the the expert technique that appeared to have been practiced uh, in the dismemberment of the bodies. It it seemed that the killer basically knew what he was doing. Uh, The coroner described a surgical precision practiced uh, during the the, uh, dismemberments, that the killer appeared to know how to navigate the joints and the ligatures, the topography of the bodies as uh, Mm -hmm. as they were approached. And this level of expertise suggested uh, a doctor, perhaps a surgeon or a medical student, maybe some kind of medical professional, or maybe a butcher. 
Uh, that was the thinking uh, from the beginning, and that assumption informed a great deal of the investigation as it progressed. Okay, and, and we also get uh, like some kind of oil accelerant uh, thrown in there too. So, uh, you know, like as if they're going to uh, burn the bodies. So, the corner. Uh, yeah, it sounds like at that point in America, uh, yeah, the uh, coroner, Dr. Uh, Pierce, is you know, dealing with something that uh, you know really wasn't very commonplace. No, uh, no, they and Pierce and some of the investigators uh, seem to understand early on. Uh, that they they were not in Kansas anymore, that they had wandered into some um, some pretty uh, peculiar uh, uh-huh. territory, some an unprecedented landscape. Uh, and it's important to understand, you know, the the there was very little in the training that they had or the work they had done uh, that prepared these guys for the work that was thrown at them by uh, this series of crimes uh, and they they threw everything they had at it uh, and even improvised uh, you know new techniques but these are guys who, who came up uh, in the era of um, Murphy call boxes you know these old-fashioned police call boxes and leather uh, truncheons and the the uh, the questions that were being asked here uh, went well beyond the experience of anyone anyone on the force at that time this was nothing less than a modern day jack the ripper uh, there's a quote from a one of the newspapers the cleveland news uh that that always stuck with me uh, the 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 writer asked uh, said is there somewhere in Cuyahoga County, a madman whose God is the guillotine. What fantastic oh. chemistry of the civilized mind converted him into a human butcher? And that's a question that, that the police really didn't have a lot of training uh, for. The fantastic chemistry of the civilized mind wasn't something they had uh, that, that had a place on the d- duty roster. Um, but in the days to come, they threw themselves into this investigation with extraordinary drive and intensity, and they pushed themselves towards a better understanding of the psychological underpinnings of the uh, of the crimes. Uh, but it was a very, very steep learning curve. Okay, so you know, now that we, you know, we're starting to get you know, a few bodies. Uh, you know, some information, you know, forensic information, um, and you do cover some suspects, you know, have been questioned, you know, you find these, like, uh, uh, female anatomy books at one guy's house, um, uh, you know, so, you know, you're building a case, uh, you know, with all this information that's uh, coming into 
you know, the police department, Elliot. Um, but what are some of the tools at this end in the 1930s that the police are using? Uh, I think you had a really interesting section on um, – oh, uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, the the uh, fingerprint expert from like he he'd been in the police department for, uh, since like the 1880s or something like that, and he had this huge shoebox full of fingerprints. And he, you know, it's, yeah, he seemed to be pretty effective. He was a very effective uh, uh, guy, a gentleman who had who had um, uh, uh, come up uh, from a beat cop to to um pull together this extraordinary collection of of uh, fingerprints that helped to identify uh very rapidly helped to identify one of the um one of the early um uh, victims but uh it's important to remember you know you mentioned our friend Mark Olshaker uh, okay. earlier yep. uh, it's important to remember this is in the 1930s and modern forensics uh and techniques that we that we're familiar with today, such as criminal profiling, that stuff hadn't happened yet. Um, but the police were trying to push through the limitations of their resources and technology. Uh, and I w- was particularly struck uh, at one case um, at one st- at one stage. Um, the police were were looking for a particular suspect. And they they couldn't find a recent photograph. All they had was a photo of this guy from the age of 12. So what they did is they projected it onto canvas onto a canvas, and they had an all an artist alter and embellish the image to approximate what the man's current appearance would look like. Hmm. Now you know that that sounds a whole lot like the age progression software. Um, that we have today. Well, that's just you know one example of of how hard they were working and how creative they were being uh, to try to get past um, the, the limits of the time. And another case, and I, I, I really think our friend uh, Mark Goldshaker would uh, would have felt right at home here. Uh, Coroner Pierce. Um, pulled together a, a conference of experts, which they were informally calling the Torso Clinic. And they brought together about 30 people, and it included professors of anatomy and medicine, uh, a court psychiatrist, uh, the superintendent of a mental institution, Elliot Ness was there, and various other uh, medical experts. and. What they did was they were trying to produce what they called at the time a synthetic portrait of the killer, which today we would recognize as criminal profiling. Uh Again, an example of of the uh, the officers of the day. Really, they were just they they didn't leave anything in the green room. They they really left it all on the field, Uh, and. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting that you, you know, you can see this as a turning point, uh, in, in the, um, development of some of the techniques, uh, of the future. 
Okay. What? And, and the uh, polygraph test was also uh, coming into use at about this time as well? Yes, uh, it, it certainly was. It was still, and it was still early days uh, and not admissible in court, but it was a tool uh, that uh, Ness and others uh, were familiar with it. Uh, Particular, Ness, in particular, in his days uh, in Chicago, had been very uh, uh, involved with and interested in what was going on at a crime lab uh, up at Northwestern University. And he would spend time there uh, studying um, uh, advancements in uh, criminal technique and uh, um, uh, advancements in crime in crime detection. One of those was uh, the lie detector. So as I like, am just you know, um, skipping over you know, a couple of chapters and you know get a, a few you know a few more uh, bodies. <laughs> Okay, so how, how you know, like the public is really starting to get, um, you know, concerned about the you know, talk about you know the mad butcher strikes again headlines and things like that. So how is you know Ness handling uh, the pressure from uh, you know those in the media? At this time, when you know we don't have really any suspects, and you know there's you know, another, you know, like Florence was found, um, you know, just recently. Uh, you know, how's how's he reacting to what's going you know, being said about him in the media? Well, you know, it it uh, it took a while. You mentioned Florence Palillo, uh, mm -hmm. who was um, uh, uh, a woman who occasionally worked uh, uh, as a prostitute, which, of course, carries echoes of, uh, of the Jack the Ripper crimes yeah, 50 years uh, earlier. But it's important to point out that it took a while. Uh, at the time uh, that uh, Florence Palillo's uh, remains were discovered, um, the police had not yet realized that they were dealing with a series of connected crimes. Uh, to some extent, the police didn't really think that way uh, at the time. They certainly didn't think in terms of uh, serial killers. The phrase itself wasn't uh, really wasn't in use at the time. But at one stage, a body was discovered barely a mile away from Jackass Hill, where the where two others had been found less than a year earlier. And the scale of the thing just snapped into focus. The Cleveland Press said that uh, words to the effect, I won't get this exactly right, the, 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 that the, the hand which removed from its body the head found in Kingsbury Run is the same hand which decapitated two men whose bodies were found in the same gully last September. And the police suddenly understood that they, that they were on the trail of this killer, this, uh, ma this mad butcher. But it's important to understand uh, about Elliot Ness. Um, he uh, 
catching killers was not what he had been brought to uh, to Cleveland to do. Um, he's director of public safety. He's at the top of the pyramid. The chief of police reports to him. Um, but they didn't, you know, um, you and I have talked a lot about uh, programs that we that we loved as as kids. For right. me, one of those shows was Macmillan and Wife. You know, Rock Hudson is uh, is the police commissioner, and every week he's out solving a crime, and it made for great TV. But the truth is, the police commissioner doesn't go out and solve crimes every week. Uh, he's he's hired to uh, to run the police department. Um, but, uh, but he's actually not, he, Ness wasn't, uh, a, um, uh, Ness wasn't a homicide detective any more than he was a fireman. You know, nobody expected him to, uh, to solve murders any more than they expected him to rescue cats stranded in trees. As I said, he was at the top of the pyramid. Uh, he devoted resources to the uh, to the crimes, he um, uh, put a lot of extra manpower uh, on the job. He ordered uh, well, once the um, investigation had been put on, into his hands, he went at it with everything uh, he had. Um, but uh, but he wasn't. This was <laughs> this wasn't what he'd been brought to Cleveland to do. He was brought brought there to clean up to clean up the police department that was what he considered to be um uh the the work that the mayor had charged him with doing but over time as these crimes gathered force and the scale of the thing um became clear ness had to do something he had to step in in any other city what ness was doing would have been good enough but he had promised the people of cleveland that he would not be a remote safety director, that he wouldn't be an ivory tower safety director. He said he would lead from the from the front lines. People expected action from Elliot Ness. And over time, uh, as the as the body count climbed up and up, he had to step in. So. So as you. You know do a masterful job of recreating what's going on in Cleveland. Now there are also these uh, uh, bodies being found in Newcastle and McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. So there's all this more information that you're weaving into this story. There's what uh, another body part uh, found uh, down the lake in uh, Sandusky, Ohio. So we have more information. You you get us wondering, okay, is this the same killer uh, traveling by train or are we dealing with a a totally different person? uh, uh, that was a really interesting aspect of um, American Demon as well. Well, it's a really interesting uh, aspect of the story. This uh, first came to light 
the, the, the crimes you mentioned in, New, in Pennsylvania uh, first uh, bubbled up kind of on the heels of this uh, torso clinic that we were talking about earlier. Uh, it's about uh, 100 miles away in Pennsylvania, and this is a potentially explosive breakthrough uh, as details came to light of a series of eerily similar crimes uh, discovered in the vicinity of uh, Newcastle, which was this small uh, but thriving industrial city near the Ohio border. And uh, there was this bleak, swampy stretch of, uh, of land uh, where um, a body had been discovered in some abandoned uh, railroad boxcars. And it appeared to have uh, uh, some, some points in common with the Cleveland crimes. And some of the detectives, uh, and one in particular, formed a theory, and it was a, it was a very plausible one, uh, that the killer was moving from location to location uh, on the rail lines that connected the locations and performing, perhaps performing some of his butchery in railroad uh, boxcars. Um, Ness took it seriously, and so did several of the, the detectives uh, under, his, uh, uh, under his command and investigated these crimes um, pretty seriously. Uh, Ness early on seems to have come to the conclusion that the, that these crimes were were uh, not related to the Cleveland series, um, but it, but uh, throughout the investigation they remained alert to the possibility that more evidence would uh, would come to the fore, and uh, um, and that the uh, Cleveland killer perhaps was operating in a wider circle than had previously been understood. Well. Um... That could be a possibility because you know Ted Bundy uh, was all over the country. You know, there's you know we we could get into you know, some of the uh, just called you know, like dumps where the bodies were dumped uh, all across the country. Uh, oh, absolutely. It, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It, 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 yeah. There there is a precedence for uh, the. Yeah, just say McKee's Rocks and uh, Cleveland thing. Yeah, there that you know could establish a precedence for the type of killer Ted Bundy was. Absolutely sure, and sure there is the idea of a killer who moves from place to place. Uh, yeah, that certainly makes a lot of sense. You can well understand why that would have been an attractive theory. Okay. So, um, so okay, so, you know, we've looked at a wide expanse of you know, the mid Midwest to the East and uh, um, yeah, kind of getting an idea of maybe you know the kind of uh, suspect um, we should be looking for. Um, but so, I mean, move away from <clears throat> um, not to, uh, 
you know, these vast distances and just kind of focus j- just on uh, Cleveland and you ha- interspersed with all this, all this information is a you know a autobiographical story that you, you work in as well. Can can you tell us a little bit? You know, that does make a uh, this a personalized history combo biography and true crime and whatever other genre you want want to include, include American Demon. But you know, there's an autobi autobiographical element to this book as well. Well, I, yeah, and I, I don't. I, I thank you for men, for mentioning that. I I don't want to make uh, uh, um, uh, too much of it, but I can't tell you what a surprise that was to me. Um, I grew up in Cleveland, and uh, I and I I've, I've been hearing about this story most of my life, beginning uh, from the from the age of nine. Um, but there was a, there was one aspect of it that really came as a huge uh, surprise to me. Um, Elliot Ness's uh, scrapbooks are in Cleveland uh, at the uh, Western Reserve Historical Society uh, Research Center, and as you might expect, um, there are a lot of articles uh, preserved in his scrapbooks that feature Capone and other gangsters, and there are mentions of um, some of the shining lights of the era, like uh, like. FDR and John D. Rockefeller and uh, J. Edgar Hoover. But I'm wow. paging through these uh, scrapbooks one day and I find my grandfather. Uh, my grandfather's name was Fred P. Stashower. And I'm scrolling through these old uh, pages and there he is. There's my grandfather's face staring back at me. And I, I can't tell you what a shock it was. I mean, it was really one of those moments where the you know the world seemed to drop away and I, I it seems that Ness and my grandfather crossed paths at least once a year at an event that was called uh, the Anvil Review and this was a political ro- a roast it was like the White House Correspondents Dinner uh, and it was staged by local businessmen at the um, uh, at the, the Cleveland City Club of which my grandfather was a member and these amateur uh, performers from the city club would sing and they would dance and they would poke fun at the city's uh, fat cats. They called them the goats. My grandfather, I came to find out, was a cast member for years and years. And Elliot Ness was a frequent target of, of, their, uh, of their sketches and their skits. And apparently... You know, Ness kind of liked it. He took it in stride, at least. And in his scrapbooks, he pasted a caricature of the actors involved, including my grandfather, along with an audience photo of himself sort of pressing a hand to his forehead. So kind of doubled over in appreciation of the joke. Um, I knew my grandfather for 34 years, long after the Untouchables TV series and even the Kevin Costner movie. He never mentioned this. Uh, but uh, but it, was, it, it was really uh, a, a kind of a joy to find it out. And also it's good to know that uh, Elliot Ness may have been untouchable, but apparently he could, he could take a joke. 
he seems to have really enjoyed these evenings, even if some of the humor, most of the humor, seemed to come at his own expense. Um, <clears throat> I'm sure 99% of the audience does not have that kind of connection to Elliot Ness, so it's it, um, it, it was interesting to uh, you know learn a little bit bit about you and your family um as you know just part of the bigger picture of the whole uh time period and you know you, you know you have a personal connection to this um case <laughs> true true crime I'll tell you, uh, yeah. For me, the personal connection began at the uh, at at the age of nine um, uh, when I was uh, sitting around a campfire, um, and the counselor uh, thought it would be a, a great idea to tell this group of uh, the story of a serial killer uh, who who. Um, uh, uh, who performed these these grisly crimes not far from the spot where we were toasting marshmallows uh, around a campfire? I remember that we had to stop the counselor uh, at one point and uh, ask what the word decapitation meant because <laughs> none of us had heard it before. Uh, and I remember that there were um, many repetitions of the phrase, and the killer is still out there. So uh, you didn't have to embellish a whole lot to turn that into the stuff of nightmares. I don't think anybody, uh, and certainly not me, slept at all that night. Um, but uh, I can tell you, the story really stuck with me. I see that. Well, you, you turn it into. Um, I'm sure it's a. Uh, it, it's a far better uh, storytelling than a camp counselor. Oh well, that's kind of you, but uh, but um, <laughs> I, it, you know, <laughs> but I, 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 unfortunately, I could not include the uh, s'mores. Uh, <laughs> oh, I, I, yeah, I, I'm sure there's some people now. Just like I, I'll, I'll buy two copies if I get s'mores with. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that'd be that, that's a pretty great idea. Yeah, but next how, time. Yeah, but how? Uh, yeah, it's and something like that's almost like you know Willy Wonka and the smell of vision or you know whatever. Uh, <laughs> but you know, yeah, you know, we're getting too too sidetracked. But you know, when you're uh, preparing for you know all the you know, onslaught of information that's coming in, like you know, you're talking about uh, the uh, you said the Case Western Library. Um, are you going through actual newspapers? Is everything on uh, like the microfish? Um, you know, you have lots of quotes in there from you know, the uh, headlines from the several you know, different newspapers. You know, that has to be taking a long time to just find the information and. You know, figure out where it goes in the chronology of your narrative. Uh, you know, it, 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 is that a challenge? It's the part I love. Uh, okay. I I love the research. 
uh, and I, I'm, I, I think that a lot of, of uh, nonfiction writers would, would say the same. Um, it's been the case with um, all of my nonfiction books that, that the part that, that I really, really enjoy is rolling around in the newspapers of the day. I mean, with my previous book, The Hour of Peril, um, reading uh, newspapers from just before the, the American Civil War was just a joy. I, I mean, the writing is so good. The information is so interesting. And also uh, reading not just the the articles and information about the story itself, but also what's going on around it at the edges. Uh, you know, with this story, uh, um, there are, <laughs> you can see um, uh, America's, so one of these bodies was discovered um, when the day's headlines were, uh, hel it was help sinking Amelia radios. So the Amelia Earhart uh, drama is, is playing out. And Jesse Owens was happening, and just all kinds of things that you see going on. Uh, where and and it's really easy to, to uh, dive down some rabbit holes. Uh, and 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 it it doesn't even it in a way it it never stops. I mean, um, uh, this uh, my first nonfiction book was a biography of Arthur Conan Doyle, a book I I loved writing. I'd been, you know, a fan of Sherlock Holmes from from childhood. That book came out nearly uh, 25 years ago. But I swear to you, <clears throat> in a sense, I haven't stopped researching it because stuff just keeps coming up. And I, even though the book's been out, you know, uh, uh, all these years, I the research still fascinates me. I can't help myself from, uh, you know, diving in. The stuff comes to light. Um, you you find yourself still um, drawn drawn back to aspects of the story, and and particularly with more and more newspapers coming online all the time and resources. Mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, if if I could, I, I you know I'd set up a, a camp bed in the Library of Congress where I do um, uh, most of, of you know the, um, a fair proportion most of uh, my research depending on the project uh, at the Library of Congress. I just I, you know, I just I just love it. I'm sure you're the same. I mean, and yeah. a lot of your listeners probably uh, probably are mm -hmm. the same too. You you uh, you pick up a thread and you follow it. Um, and that—that's the fun of it. Yeah, and I, you know, I think we have a lot of creative listeners, and I—I'm sure you know whatever they're doing, music, arts, uh, you know, writing. Or, uh, that's why it's nice to have uh, professional authors on to also make it instructive you know, for the listeners as well. And, Hopefully they will, um, you know, get some ideas to, you know, finish the project, get it out there to their audience. So uh, it's, um, yeah, it's nice to get 
a professional's you know, struggles and what they learned, you know, going down the rabbit hole and, and end up with a totally different book. But you know, that's where the information takes you. It, it, it is fascinating. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, it is. It's fascinating, and and uh, and it's e- it's easy to um, uh, to get lost. Um, I will. I can only say that uh, there there came a time with that with the Conan Doyle book that I mentioned earlier, um, uh-huh. when my my wife told me in no uncertain terms that it was time to move on. Uh, <laughs> she was uh, she was getting tired of what she came to call six degrees of Sherlock Holmes. Um, because there was absolutely no no topic, no matter how seemingly innocuous, uh, that I couldn't you know jump on, pick up, and twist and pervert into some anecdote about Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, and and uh, uh, I can still uh, you know I still have to resist uh, uh, the urge, but I've 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 learned to rein it in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm kind of a, a, a... At that point, with a project I'm working on, but you know, we'll maybe Barbara will interview me on on my own show sometime. But but you know, Elliot is you know the main character of American Demon. Uh, you know, you also have other you know really strong characters that uh, you developed, and uh, I can't put. Still can't find the uh, uh, fingerprint specialist name, uh, but there's also uh, Mary Lowe. Uh, oh, Detective Marlow, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he was also another really interesting character. You know, this is you, know, you do a, a fantastic job of like recreating, you know, like all the people in Elliot's office and uh, you know. Yeah, you know what? You know they're going to come up. Uh, you know the angles that they may present to, uh, you know, try to uh, capture the uh, uh, killer. But you know what's uh, uh, Mary Lowe's, uh, you know, role in this American Jack the Ripper case? Well, he was—he uh, he may well have been the most uh, dedicated man uh, ever uh, to put on a, uh, a, a. He may have been the most dedicated man ever to put on a police uh, uniform. He was a, a longtime veteran of the uh, uh, of the force and the uh, chief chief of police. Basically, uh, put him on um, put him on the job. Uh, uh, he got a call. He was uh, brought down to police headquarters, and the chief of police, a man named uh, uh, Matowitz, had uh, cleared his caseload um, in response to a fresh discovery of a of a dismembered body, and put him to work full time on the uh, on the torso um, uh, killing. And he was this incredibly, incredibly hard worker. Uh, he, 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 and uh, Elliot Ness did not get along. Uh, they, you know, they butted heads from the very beginning. Uh, it could not have helped 
Marilow was Chief Matowitz's expert, and uh, you know Ness hadn't uh, you know had his own ideas of how to pursue the case. But no one could fault how hard this guy worked on the case. I mean, not only did he work morning, noon, and night, uh, he sometimes spent his vacations working on the case. You you uh, you mentioned the killings in Pennsylvania. Uh, earlier, Merlo took his family on vacation, uh, on vacation, mind you, uh, to Pennsylvania to have a look at uh, at some of these murder sites. And Merlo even at one point uh, dr- dressed up as a vagrant and set himself out uh, uh, mixing among uh, the, uh, the the um, uh, the homeless population. Uh, to, uh, you know, to get more information and possibly even to attract the killer himself. Uh, you know, can you imagine uh, such a thing? I mean, that level of dedication is uh, is just extraordinary. And he's just one, I mean, he's the most uh, um, uh, pronounced example, but he's just one of the incredibly dedicated law officers who came at this case with everything they had. Okay, and yeah, you know we have you know few more minutes, and then you know you have to get back to writing your <laughs> next award-winning uh, book. But um, yeah, you do have the example of a Godaway from uh, you know, maybe someone who's a suspect. Um, it seems like the uh, people who, uh, you know, and John and Mark's uh, dozen books or so they've uh, co-authored, you get a, a few examples of the victim that got away, and that usually spells trouble for the bad guy. Yeah. Uh there's a now I can only give you a thumbnail because uh it's it's a it's a complicated story with a lot of internal contradictions uh and and uh, some things that won't make sense without the without the context but there's this uh man that's, named uh Emil Fronick by the book <laughs> I like the way you think uh Emil Fronick he's been living rough uh, in Kingsbury Run, which is this area where most, many of the crimes appeared to have been taking place, seemed to be the killer's hunting ground. And he'd come to the city uh, to try his luck working in the rail yards and the loading docks. Uh, but these were tough times and work was scarce, and he was reduced to going door to door looking for handouts. And he comes upon this building, he knocks on the on the door, and a man who uh, he, Fronick said, looked like a doctor, um, offered him a handout. And he, he invited him in. He sat him down. He said he'd give him a pair of shoes. And he told him he would give him something to eat. And the doctor disappears into another room. And he returns with uh, coffee and a plate of meat and potatoes. And Fronick, you know, he's, he's in heaven. He says, this is the finest handout anybody ever offered me. And he starts eating, and he says, uh, suddenly he began to feel sick. 
and uh, he's getting suspicious, and he says the room begins to spin, and somehow he gathers his wits about him, and he runs out the door, and he can hear this man, whom he said looked like a doctor, calling behind him, saying, you know, wait, you know, come back, let's have some more to drink. And Fronick, by by his account, says he staggered towards some nearby train tracks and found an empty boxcar, and he climbs aboard and he collapses into a heap. And uh, he says he woke up three days later. Who knows if that's if that's the case or not? Uh, and um, he goes back looking for the the guy that he now realizes drugged him. He, he can't find him, and he says. In my jungle life, he means his life on the road, you know, his life as a, um, uh, as a vagrant. I've never been afraid of anything else, he says. But uh, in those moments before he lost conscience, he says, I believed that man in Cleveland would kill me. So uh, uh, he appears to be the one who got away. As you say, the, the the one who survived, and and uh, as you say, uh, uh, in in other cases of this type, it's it, those are the 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 um, often shine an important light on the case. That was certainly also the case here, but with um, with contradictory and ambiguous results. Okay, and, and how you know if. Um... Someone is going to stop at uh, Cleveland this weekend or over the summer to visit the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> There's, uh, like, how, how much, like, if they uh, drive around like 55th uh, Street, uh, you know, there's a, a big exit, uh, you know, to get get to that street. Uh, you know, it's all post posted there. Um, like, how, how much? Of you know, like uh, Elliot's you know, 1930s Cleveland is uh, still there. Well, the the uh, the topography has changed um, has changed a whole lot, and what does remain is greatly changed. I think if you dumped Elliot Ness down in the middle of uh, of, of Cleveland by the by the public square, um, there's there is a lot that's changed. There are a few things he would he would uh, recognize, but a, but a great deal has changed. But there is one thing. Um, there's the uh, the Shaker Rapid Transit train, the uh, the the um, you know the the public uh, overground metro that um, that carried commuters from the Terminal Tower, the famous. Uh, um, skyscraper that anchored uh, the um, uh, the rail lines in Elliot Ness's day in the center of town and carried commuters out to, to this new suburb called Shaker Heights, um, still passes through some area that, through a sort of rough area that um, at, at uh, in Ness's day uh, was part of Kingsbury Run. And there is a quote that I especially love from a man whose name was John Bartlow Martin and was an early writer, an early uh, uh, writer on this case. And if, you, if you'll if you bear with me for a minute, okay. um, this is something that you can still see today. 
that Ness would recognize. And it, it goes like this. I've just put my hands on it now. Outside, a red fuse flickers fitfully by the rails where an engine is switching. And in the distance, the sky glows dully with the lights around Public Square. A rapid transit train rattles and rolls, leaning on the curve. Its windows a streak against the black cliffs. And for an instant, its headlight sweeps the foot of Jackass Hill, but only for an instant. The blackness closes in. The night on Jackass Hill is impenetrable as ever. I think that's a great piece of writing. <laughs> that's the kind yeah. of... Uh, stuff you'd find uh, in the newspapers of the day by writers like John Bartlow Martin and others. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like uh, uh, film noir kind of writing. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, Chandler-esque. Oh, yeah, yeah uh, oh, uh, um, uh, I never thought that uh, uh, oh, uh, what was that? Um, Honeysuckle smelled like murder. From um, <laughs> oh, oh, what's that movie? Uh, uh, oh, what was that that movie? I can't think of it. The audience is yelling at me. I, I can't believe how <laughs> how dumb Mark is. He forgot he forgot that. Um, that's what. Um, Double Indemnity. Oh God, yeah, what a movie. But but, but yeah, yeah, that yeah that passage sounds yeah. Uh, like it foreshadowed <clears throat> all those kind of movies. You know, I, I like I like your, your reading of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, for me, Chandler and Red Wind. That there was a desert wind blowing that night. I just, yeah, terrific stuff. And there's a lot of that um, woven uh, uh, throughout that that story by. Newsmen in fedoras with uh, mm -hmm. press passes shoved into their hat bands. Yeah, I think that's one of the great things about uh, your books is you do a fantastic job of recreating the time period. And e even with uh, you know, the beautiful Cigar Girl, you know, there, there's uh, you know, you're working in uh, you know the Barnum Museum. Oh yeah, it's uh, like you know, yeah. You know, most people wouldn't think of that, but you know, there's you know, there's what a, a trolley stop in front in front of the Barnum Museum. Uh, so you know, you, you do a great job of uh, you, you know, just recreating all the you know you know just, just it, it feels like you're uh, there and you know seeing. Uh, Mary Rogers, you know, walk by the Barnum Museum and the you know, uh, trolleys, you know, maybe Poe's uh, walking up another street. You know, they never meet each other, but, um, you know, you, you, you feel like you're there. I think well, that's the, I, thank you. Uh, thank you for saying so. Um, uh, that's the, the fun of it uh, for me, and it's what I what – I, I enjoy so much about so many of the uh, the, the nonfiction writers that that I admire um, is there, that uh, you are there feeling that uh, that you go for. Um, but uh, that's that's always been um, uh, part of the fun of it. It's what what drew me to um, mystery stories 
as a kid, um, this sense of time and place uh, and setting um, that that uh, that so many other writers I admire uh, are able to do. And, you know, uh, to bring it back to Sherlock Holmes, which seems to be where so many roads lead for me, um, you know, that nostalgic uh, uh, chamber of the heart where it is always 1895. Uh, just just these evocative mm. phrases that that plant you that plant you right in the middle of a of a time and place okay so uh w- what are you working on now i'm uh still fishing i'm looking around uh, uh and i like this part of it it's it's like uh you know going to an auto showroom and test driving and kicking the tires uh and looking and uh uh, uh looking for ideas um i have always been weirdly superstitious about talking about work in progress. Uh, I can honestly say <laughs> that, uh, that I'm, that I'm at, I'm very much at the discuss in the uh, working on working on a book now rather than actually being uh, uh midstream. Okay. Yeah. There's, you know, you want to do like profile of a uh, podcaster. <laughs> it's, what it takes to well, put a show together. Uh, you know, uh, um, at least it, it's probably got to have a murder in it. I, I, don't, I don't know if you're willing to go that far. No, 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 no. no just, just the insanity of, uh, uh, you know, reading all the books and still being able to be somewhat coherent. Ah, insanity. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, we can work with that. <laughs> Okay, well, it, I better let you, you know, you know, ran a few minutes over, but, uh, you know, I better let you uh, do some more fishing. And, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, we'll ha- have to have you back to uh, do, uh, you know, the uh, Lincoln book and get more into the Pinkerton or, you know, the Sir, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle book, you know, more Houdini stuff. I, yeah, you know, kind of working on a another Houdini show for later in the year. So, uh, um, yeah, so you know, you're, you're always welcome to come back. You have amazing books, and I encourage everyone to go to Amazon and look up Daniel Stash Hour and see uh, Canon on Amazon. They're uh, fantastic book so uh you know uh you know the invitation stands open you know if you're looking for some want to cover another book you know just let me know uh i enjoy what you do yeah well thank you that's that's uh uh, really kind of you and i've i've really enjoyed uh, i've really enjoyed the conversation um yeah i'll be back and uh uh you know um uh you'll have to kick me off (laughs) <laughs> okay. Yeah, we'll have we'll have to, we'll have to uh, do do it again. Uh, you know, cover uh, do, do beautiful cigar girl for another you know, a, a new audience or uh, venture into uh, a third one of your books. But you know, we'll yeah you know, we'll do it again. And uh, yeah, just hang on the line for just 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 a, a couple more minutes, and you know, we'll wrap up the show and. Uh, you know, Barbara's going to have someone really interesting uh, Monday, and 
I uh, think we're I'm going to be doing uh, a prehistoric show on the 25th or 26th or so, 25th with uh, some really neat archaeologists. So uh, uh, we will see you soon. Thanks everyone for uh, tuning in tonight, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, be back with some more great shows next week.